If you have your Bible, you can open to John chapter 5. We're going to be there in verses 17 and uh, probably down to 28. Um, I had a really interesting experience when uh, I was reading and studying for this, this passage for this week. I, this was just automatic. I didn't mean to do this. But I just began to feel a kind of empathy for the wrong people in the story. And what I mean by that is I was struck by the fact that here's Jesus last week who does this incredible miracle of healing this paralytic by the pool. And then Jesus is accosted by the Sanhedrin, the religious establishment, these leaders. And they come and they want an accounting of this by whose authority. Who do you think you are? Who gave you the authority? Who do you think you are healing people on the Sabbath? And then as I read Jesus's defense of himself, it occurred to me, this was very, a very difficult thing for them to hear. What Jesus is going to unpack, what he's going to open up this morning for us in this text is the beginning of a discussion about revealing that he is God. He is God incarnate. And so the, the very opening salvo in John chapter 5 is very difficult for them to hear. And the reason why I empathize with them is because about four times in my life, I've gotten news that I wasn't ready to hear. Has that ever happened to you? When somebody said, hey, it's time to sit down. I have to tell you something that you, you're not going to be ready to hear. And I realize in every one of those moments when I was not ready to hear it, the reason I was not ready to hear it is because I just wasn't prepared. I wasn't prepared for the news. I wasn't prepared for the truth of it. I wasn't prepared in any experience in my life for what was about to come. And that's what they're experiencing. The Sanhedrin, these Jewish guys who, who lead Jewish religion, they don't really have a framework, a way of understanding what is this man, this human being who stands before us and claims to be our God, the God of the Old Testament, Enfleshed, embodied. And so that's kind of what we're going to look at today. Um, so last week we established that when Jesus comes through, he graciously meets our needs miraculously. And miracles kind of do a couple of things. They reveal God's character of grace and compassion in his heart toward us. They also reveal our character. They reveal the state of the heart with us. And then the other thing that they do is that they call us to a decision point. They tell us it's time for you to make a decision and a hurt and wounded heart can become a hardened heart or it can become a softened heart based on what God is doing in your life. And so now God has done this for this paralytic, this man who is by the pool. He has done it. He has brought this man healing and now Jesus is being accosted about the issue but he's going to go one further. He's not just going to say, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, which what? Wow, really? He's not just going to say that. He is going to say, I and the Father are one in a unique way, in a unique way. So here's the main thought today. God is actively, continually working to redeem lost people. Why is that important? Because Jesus wants to tell them God is still working. You think he's resting and doing nothing on the Sabbath? Actually, I want to show you that's not true. 
God is actively, continually working to redeem lost, wounded, hurting people. And as God's unique son from eternity, Jesus is uniquely authorized to carry out that plan of redemption. Jesus is. And so the passage we're reading has a summary statement. It's actually right here in verse 18. It says this, and this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. So that's how the story of the paralytic ends. That's the summary statement. They wanted to shut him down, to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath on their view, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. I want to say this very clear. Whatever you think about this text, John 5, John 6, 7, 8, 10, whatever you think about it, the Jews in that temple complex were very clear what Jesus was claiming. I mean, they were very clear. They knew exactly what he was doing, exactly what he was implying by all of this. So now that verse becomes a summary of what we just covered last week, that story, the paralytic, but it also is a summary statement of everything that Jesus is going to say and unpack for them. So what does it mean for Jesus to be equal with God? What does the word equal mean? It means equivalency. And in this context, in John's context in particular, it means equivalency of essence or quality. It's the same quality, the same essence, essential nature. And so the rest of this passage, Jesus responds to this implicit charge of lawbreaking and blasphemy. What does Jesus say in the passage that indicates that he is one with the Father, that he and the Father are equal? Now, just so we don't borrow from the upcoming weeks, we're going to stay within the horizons of John chapter 5. So I'm not going to pull a lot of things that Jesus has to say about before Abraham was, I am. We're not going to look at that until those weeks. But right now, we're just going to stay within this introductory, this opening salvo that Jesus gives them himself. Number one, the Father and Jesus share the same mission. They share the same work of redemption. They share the same mission, the work. So God's work of creation has ceased. So back in Genesis chapter 2, what did God do on the seventh day? He rested. What does that mean? That means he entered a state, the Old Testament calls it Shabbat, and that word means ceasing. I mean, it means to rest. From what? What did he rest from? Creation. God entered a period of time until new creation at the end of the age in which he doesn't create things out of nothing anymore. He created everything out of nothing, and everything he created after that, he created from the material that he created, right? Right, so how did he create Adam? From the dirt that he created, <laughs> right? So there's nothing that God hasn't created, and God creates stuff out of nothing. That's called ex nihilo creation, out of nothing. And then from the stuff that he creates, from the matter and the stuff that he creates, he creates new stuff. And the Bible says on the seventh day, he entered a prolonged period of time, a period of time in which he is at a rested state from that. But Jesus wants to say, even though you have rightly understood that that's what Sabbath is about, you need to understand that from that time, God resting from creation, he actually has entered a new vocation. He has new work. And that work is the plan of redemption. That work now, God is working. The Father is working. And Jesus says, so am I. 
And if the Father is working, so am I. And that work is, institu- is sort of setting into motion this plan of redemption that God has for lost and hurting and broken and sinful people. That's his ongoing work. So it's the active, ceaseless outreach to a hurting and dying world. So God chose one man to bring forth a family. Who was that man? Abraham. God chose one man to bring a family. And from that family, he brought forth one man. And from that one man, he has brought forth a new family made up of every tribe and every nation and every ethnicity across the face of the earth, the people of God. And that's his work, and that's Jesus' work. So let's look in verse 17 what he says is his work of redemption. He says here, Jesus said to them, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not, not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Verse 19, Jesus gave them this answer. This is the answer. He said, very truly, I tell you. Now that phrase, very truly, I tell you, is the word amen. The word amen comes into Greek as amen. And it comes from an Aramaic word, which is the word amen, which comes from the Hebrew word amen. You learned something. There you go. Write that down. (laughs) Not hard. And here's what it means. This is a solemn truth. You better pay attention. You better listen to this. Now, here's how Jesus used that word differently than every other rabbi. And frankly, no rabbis used it this way. And frankly, you and I don't use it this way either. I don't start my sermon by saying, amen, amen. That's always at the end of our prayer, our worship. And that's the way the Jews did it too. The Jewish rabbis at the end of the tefillah, for example, that was one of their prayers. And at the end of the tefillah, they would say, amen, amen. That's what they would say. And it means, listen to this word. Listen to, this is solemnly true. You better pay attention. Jesus, unlike any other rabbi, starts his teaching by saying, amen, amen. You better listen up, because what I'm about to tell you is of utmost importance. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing, because whatever the father does, he also does. The son also does. Now, just stop right there. That is a metaphor. All scholars agree that that is a metaphor of apprenticeship. This is a, this is a description of what little Jewish boys do when they learn their father's trade. They learn their father, they apprentice with their father. Jesus goes off to Sepphoris. He walks the six-mile journey from where, his hometown, and they go and they work on stonemasonry projects. They build stairs, they build steps, they build columns, they build all kinds of stuff. That's carpentry in the first century. And so he learns that, and what they do is they learn to watch, to walk, and to work with their father. And so this is a metaphor, this is an analogy of this is how an apprentice learns, right? So Jesus is the proper disciple, the proper apprentice of his father. That's the analogy here, okay? But then he goes on. He says, oh, you should should watch this. He says, verse 20, for the father loves the son and shows him all he does. You know, you love your little boy. And yes, and, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. Underline that word amazed. That is going to be so important when we get to the end of this text. You will be astonished. That word amazed means to be drawn into wonder. It means to be awed with proper fear. Oh, that's going to be so fun. 
He says, for just as the father rises from the dead, raises the dead, and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom it pleases him to give. So the first thing we learn is that Jesus, the son, has the same mission of the father. They have the same work. And they have the same work because they are of the same essence. They are equal in essence, though distinct in person. And Jesus uses that metaphor to help them to understand, yes, I am the son of God. Now, can you imagine being a Jewish rabbi and a human being standing there in front of you telling you that? That is blasphemy. That's high blasphemy. Now, think about how Jesus did miracles. Think about how Jesus did miracles. Jesus does not perform any kind of rituals whatsoever. I mean, there might be a few incidents where he uses some medicinal aids like spitting into dirt and creating a little slimy concoction and rubbing it onto a guy's eyes. You know, that's kind of nasty, but I mean, that was a rabbinic medicinal aid. And so he works through that, fine. But Jesus doesn't perform any rigmarole at all. If he wants to raise the dead, he doesn't do it like Elijah. He doesn't lay over top of the body and go, you know, and try, I mean, he does, there are no rituals, nothing. He doesn't even ask God to do a miracle. The only place where he prays and asks God to do a miracle, we're going to learn, is in John 11 with the raising of Lazarus. And in that prayer, Jesus says this, I'm only praying for your benefit. <laughs> he explicitly says, I don't even need to pray. I mean, Jesus calls things into being that were not. Think about that woman in Nain. Jesus has traveled all the way. It's in Luke's gospel. Jesus travels all the way to her town. He comes to her town. The funeral procession is in progress. The boy, her son, is being led out. The buyer comes out. They lead his casket out. Jesus is waiting for it to come by. And when it does, he stops it. And he says, get up. And the boy sits up. And they're like, what? (laughs) You know what I mean? This is Jesus, and this is what theologians call legislative miracle working power. Okay, Jesus doesn't ask the Father to to perform miracles for him. He doesn't ask God. He just does it because his will and the Father's will, the Father's mission and his mission are perfectly by nature in sync. And when Jesus performs a miracle, he does exactly what the Father wills to do as his true and authentic son. Think about that. So, the Father and Jesus share the same work. Two, the Father and Jesus share the same message. They share the same word of eternal life. I want to show you something. Like, beyond the miracle stuff, I want to show you how Jesus talked, right? So, it's in verses 22 through 26 and 28 and 29. He says this, Truly, truly, amen, amen. I say to you, an hour, this time period, has come. It's coming and is now here. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. So he's talking about resurrection. And those who hear will live. They will come back to life forever. Whereas the Father has life in himself, so he is also granted. Now that's an official word of authorization. In other words, the Father has given the Son the authorization to have life in himself and impart it to whoever he wishes. That's very important. And the Son also has life in himself. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in their tombs will hear his voice, the son's voice, and come out. And those who have done good to resurrection life. Are you a do-gooder? Are you? You may think you are. Here's, here's my question for you. Are you a believer? 
Because up until this point in John chapter 3, Jesus has made it very clear. The good that he expects you to do is to open your hands and receive this gift. Is to believe so that you may have eternal life. Jesus said this. This is eternal life. To know the one whom you have sent. It is knowing God. That's the good. It's believing by faith and receiving grace. That's the good. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So Jesus is going to raise everyone. And they will all stand before him. Now Jesus is telling the Sanhedrin that the God of Amos and Hosea and Zechariah and all these books that talk about the day of the Lord in which God will stand in judgment over every person, that's me. The Father has given me the authority to decide your eternal destiny. That's so hard. That's, you and I read it because we're Christians. We believe it. We've been raised to believe it. We've been reading this forever, but these people, I cannot hear this. It is just striking. It is jarring to hear it. And notice he says, hears my words and believes. Jesus does not come like an Old Testament prophet. Sure, he is prophet. He is the last prophet in a long line of suffering servants. He is the last spokesman for God. But Jesus, folks, is so much more. He does not come. When does Jesus ever come and say, thus saith the Lord? No. When Jesus speaks, it's the Lord thus saying. That's what he thinks of himself, and that's why he gets into so much trouble. When Jesus works, it is the Father and the Son working in the power of the Spirit to do those miracles together. And when Jesus speaks, it is God speaking. He does not speak as a representative of God. He speaks as a man representational of God's very nature. Think about that. He says, he that hears my words and believes my words. This is an intractable situation for the Jews now, I believe that the message, the word that Jesus has for them begins with Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus comes into his hometown synagogue. You can read that story later. And in verses 18 and 19, he, takes, he opens up this Isaiah scroll, and he basically sings it. They, they're supposed to sing it back to him. But he conflates two columns. One is what we would call Isaiah 58. The other one's Isaiah 61, except he quotes Isaiah 61 first, and it goes back and, and sort of uh, splices in Isaiah 58. So he puts those two passages together in his recitation of the passage that morning, and everybody is speaking well of him. And here's what it says. This is the vocation of the Messiah. This is his job description. This is the spirit of the sovereign Lord, Yahweh, is upon me. Because he has anointed me to do what? To proclaim good news to the poor, the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who have been oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Folks, there is a word, a message in here that every person needs to start with, and it's the message that his hometown synagogue could not accept from him. And that is that we must acknowledge, firstly, our spiritual poverty. You cannot receive the resurrection life that is in the Son from the Father unless we first admit that we come to God, we come to the table with nothing. You come with absolutely nothing. You and I come bankrupt of soul, impoverished in our soul. And we come with open hands, nothing to transact with. We come to the bargaining table. Turns out it's not a bargaining table. It's, it is an altar. And on it is a lamb who was already slain for your sins. And so we come there to transact, admitting that we are spiritually bankrupt. We are the poor 
in spirit. We're the poor in spirit. And so he has come to proclaim good news, the jubilee, (laughs) to the poor. Those who are willing to recognize that they are impoverished, impoverished of spirit. And then we must acknowledge our spiritual blindness. Now, in a couple of weeks, we are going to deal with the story in John chapter 9, where Jesus heals a man blind. Now, this is very interesting. I love the way Jesus, he takes this miracle. The guy is healed of his blindness by the pool, by the way. And he receives Jesus. It's great. It's a great story. But then the the Pharisees come again. The Sanhedrin comes again, and they say, how dare you? Stop doing this. Stop it. Stop performing miracles on our Sabbath and breaking our Sabbath laws. Stop doing that. And Jesus says this. Jesus tells them, you, you are the spiritually blind. And they go, what? We, we're not the blind ones. And he goes, you know what? I'm done. Because you say you can see, your blindness remains. So he takes this literal miracle of a man literally being healed of blindness and then turns it into an analogy of their spiritual blindness. And he says this, so long as you say, I see, I see very clearly, I have the truth. I found my own truth. And and I want to share with you my own truth. So long as you say, God is not true, and what I believe is true, you're blind. You remain in darkness. And so you and I have to confess our spiritual bankruptcy. We bring nothing to this bargaining table. And you and I have to confess our spiritual blindness. We don't see the light. We don't see the truth. And we need the Holy Spirit through God's word to reveal the truth of Christ to us. And then the third vocation is we must acknowledge our captivity to sin. If you want to be released and liberated from captivity to sin, you have to first acknowledge that you're imprisoned to it. You have to acknowledge the fact that I am trapped in sin. I don't know how to get out. I don't have the resources to get out. I can't. Because that's how we're saved. Because Jesus comes to those who acknowledge their spiritual poverty, the poor in spirit. Those who acknowledge that they are spiritually blind and those who acknowledge that they are captive to sin. So all those who are willing to confess, all the poor and the blind and the powerless receive eternal life when they confess their faith in Jesus. So the life that the Father has is in the Son. And they share the same mission. They share the same work. Thirdly, the Father and the Son share the same merit. So they share the same mission, they share the same message, they share the same merit, which is the worthiness of glory. I want to show you this. I want to show you how the Bible deals with this. Now, they both share the work of the gospel and this message of salvation by grace through faith alone as we confess our sins freely. And he says this in verses 22 and 23. Wow, this is so difficult for them to hear. He says, for the father judges no one. But it has given all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Think about that. Jesus is saying if you dishonor the Son, you actually dishonor the Father. You think you're honoring him with all of this religion. And these rules, but the truth is you're not. You're dishonoring the Father because you dishonor the Son. They go hand in hand. Now, what is honor? What does it mean? This is the definition of honor. It is to show great esteem. 
It is to esteem highly or to have high regard for, or it is to merit someone as worthy of a station that is commensurate with, with their station, right? So who are we told or commanded in the scriptures to honor? Who are we commanded to honor? Mother and father, why? It's because Jesus said so. That's always the right answer. Thank you, Seb. The Sunday school answer. Jesus. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, he's our youth director, by the way. He, he knows the right answer. <laughs> okay, mother and father. Mother and father are worthy of honor. This was an elder honor culture, not a youth worship culture, okay? They honored their elders. They honored mom and dad, mother and father. Okay, who else? The elderly, absolutely. You honor the elderly. You don't push them out of the way. You don't marginalize them. They are the wise ones. Who else? The authority of the land. Paul told Timothy, honor the king. Who was king? Caesar. You don't like your president? Maybe you love him. Maybe you don't. I don't know where you stand on that. But you surely wouldn't like Caesar. You wouldn't. And Paul told Timothy, you honor the king. You honor the people who are in leadership over you. And then we're, to, we're also told to honor our Christian pastors and leaders and people who lead us in the faith. We're told to show them proper honor. Now, that honor is great. It's, it is an esteem that is commensurate with a person's station, right? But it is not the honor we show God. The honor that we show God is uniquely singularly for God. It is not for anyone else. Now, I want to show you that in the scriptures, and then we're going to find out what the scripture stance is toward Jesus and the honor of God, okay? So, in Romans 121, what is the problem? What is the problem with the human race? For they, although they, the human race, us, knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, blinded spiritually. So what he's saying here is that there is an honor in the context of worship. There is an honor and esteem for God that is singularly, uniquely God's alone. First Timothy 1.17, he says it again to Timothy. He says, to the king of the ages, he's talking about God, who is what? Immortal. He's not a human being. He's immortal. He's invisible. You can't see him. He's the only God. Judaism teaches that there is one true God of the universe, period. Be glory and honor. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The only one who is worthy of our honor and glory and worship forever and ever, the only God, the only true God. Hebrews 2, 9. For we see him who, Christ, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and and honor because of the suffering of, the de of his death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In the act of dying on a cross, dying a substitutionary death in our place, he ultimately reveals the glory and the honor of God and God says, that is worthy of my glory. That is worthy of my honor. And now I want to show you two passages. One is in Revelation 4. The other is in Revelation 5. The one in Revelation 4 is a vision that John is having. It's a lot of freaky apocalyptic imagery in there. But in Revelation 4, he is seeing the entire heavenlies gathered around the heavenly throne, the great white throne, and worshiping God, the only God. I want to show it to you. Verse 9. 
And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy, worthy are you, Lord, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. This is God. And by, you, by your will, they existed and were created. So in a continuation of this picture now, it's the same scene. In this picture, we see the lamb who is on the altar in the midst of the throne, right in the middle of the throne, the lamb who was slain. And this is how it treats the lamb at the center of God's redemptive work. Chapter 5, verse 12, in a loud voice, they were saying, these same worshipers, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory for pre- forever and praise. And that I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and unto the lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped him. Think about that. Here we have the Father seated on his throne, the Son at the center of the throne room of God, this Lamb of God who was slain for our sins, and the same worshipers who are worshiping the Father, worshiping the Lamb, giving him the same glory, the same honor, and the same praise. Now the Sanhedrin, these rabbis, these rabbinic competitors of Jesus, they can't possibly fathom all that. They can't wrap their minds around this. And so what Jesus wants to do is open the conversation. He just wants to open it up to say very clearly, I share the same mission and work of redemption as the Father. Our mission is one because we are one for hurting and lost and dying people. Jesus shares the same message and the word of the Father. There is no salvation under any other name through any other name than Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus shares the same merit and worthiness of the Father. There is no salvation unless we embrace the Son of God, who is also God the Son. And what was their response? Anger. Murderous anger. What should have been their response? Wonder. Remember I told you to underline that word marble? What, what should have been their response was a marveling at the glory of God who is now embodied in flesh and revealing himself in miracles and in power and authority ah, through this man. And what they should have experienced is the moment of fear, <laughs> just a shiver going down their spine, and awe, and laughter, joy. You see, fear and awe are not the same thing. They're not. You can fear something and not be in awe of it. If somebody followed you to your ATM machine today and put a gun to your head and said, give me all your money, uh, for me, that might be a short trip for them. (laughs) But if they did that, I would be very afraid of the gun. But I wouldn't be in awe. I wouldn't have reverence for that person. How many of you guys have seen the Aurora Borealis? How many of you? Wow, a lot of you. Were you afraid of it? Were you in awe of it? Yes. So you can experience awe for something that you don't fear. And you can experience fear for something that you don't awe. But when you experience God, you have both. 
<laughs> you experience both. The only analogy that I could give you is years ago, I went on a missions trip uh, to Belize, Central America with a team, and I was a young guy and pretty spry, and so we wanted to hike up a mountain, and there was, they're, they're full of waterfalls. That place is full of waterfalls, and they took us to a really big one, and they said, oh, you're going to love this one. So we hiked a long way up this mountain. It felt like it was forever. And we got up to the top. And uh, before you get there and you see it, you could hear it roaring in the distance. And it just excites you. You can't wait to see it. And then when you get there, uh, (laughs) they had this cool little bridge. To me, it just looked like a rickety little bridge that was probably built that morning. (laughs) But it was going right in front of the waterfall. And so the American kids were just kind of, we got up there and the natives got out on, on the middle of it and they were enjoying it and they were waving us out. And we were like, no, no, we won't be doing that. <laughs> I'm not getting near that thing. And then they finally coaxed us out and we finally got out there. And when we got out there, I, I remember standing there and just feeling the power of the spray. Just, it was right there and the waterfall was hitting me. And I felt two things. I felt afraid of the thing that I was in front of and I felt awe. I was in awe, and that's the experience that you have with God. And one more thing, I felt joy. I laughed and I smiled and I couldn't believe it was this powerful. And that's how you feel in front of God. And that's the response that they should have had. The response they should have had was not religious condemnation of Jesus. It should have been to bow to their knees and to fear the one who has incarnated himself in a human life, Jesus of Nazareth, so clearly. Will you join me in that right now? Let's pray. You may be sitting here and you're not saved, but you think you are. The truth is you think you're a Christian because you were raised raised in a church or maybe even baptized in that church. But the truth of the matter is you don't know God. And you've never sat in front of Jesus of Nazareth, the God-man, and had a moment of sheer, pure, sanctified panic a panic that shot through you to know that you were in the presence of Almighty God in a man, in a human life. And what it should have done in that moment is to cause you to bow and surrender in your heart to the one and only, the glory of the one and only. And if you have never done it, will you do it right now? Will you just reach out? This is the good work. This is the good, to believe the one whom the Father has sent. Would you just trust in him for salvation right now? You don't understand everything. That's okay. You don't get all the doctrine stuff. That's okay. Because God is present right now by the Spirit to reach back into your heart and to save you. Just receive it as you confess that you bring nothing to the table. You bring nothing. You're spiritually poor. You're blind in your sin and you're held captive by your sin. God, we confess it. Would you save us? And he will. And for those of you who are believers, your heart is to say, hey, look, I believe all that. Now what? Get it? Got it? Good. Go tell your neighborhood. Let's make a commitment right now to tell the people in our world, in our neighborhoods, where we live and where we work, this good news, this good news of jubilee, of forgiveness, that God has given Jesus of Nazareth the authority to save us and then to invite them to it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.